And uh, while they're doing that, if I can invite you to open uh, your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Uh, finally getting back in the book of Acts, we began this year in, uh, I think in January we began the book of Acts, and we went through kind of the first part, and then uh, took a little break over the summer, and, um, and uh, we're finally getting back into this, and I'm really excited to be in, um, and we're going to kind of move around at a little different pace. Uh, we're starting here in Acts uh, 16 today. Next week we're going to go back a chapter to Acts 15 and then we're going to uh, try to go forward as best we can. Um, you'll see the second part of Acts is kind of squished together. So uh, quite a lot of time elapsing. For instance, he stayed several years in uh, the city of Ephesus and they get one chapter in this. Um, and so we'll bounce around to some of the letters that Paul wrote to these churches um, in conjunction with... Uh, the chronological narrative of it that's included in the book of Acts. I'll remind you that Luke wrote the book of Acts, and uh, this is kind of his uh, sequel to uh, the gospel bearing his name, and uh, this is Acts of the Apostles, or really the birth of the church. So you'll notice even as uh, Weston read today several times, it said the word us, specifically in verse 10, after Paul had seen this vision, he went up uh, into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And that us uh, is Paul certainly, but also including Luke. So we're getting kind of first-hand narrative from Luke, this author, on what exactly is, uh, is going on. And this is an incredible passage. We do not have time to go through all of it. I woke up this morning, uh, was looking at my notes, and I had 16 pages, which is not good for you. Uh, I have whittled that down to 10, and still it's going to be um, hard to get through, and I know you're saying, we'll get with it already. Um, whatever we don't get to, uh, you can uh, just, I guess, read in it. So much richness. That verse uh, 10 that we just read, this idea that God has called us to a specific place. Um, I love this. It's written no clearer anywhere else in the New Testament. God's call in our lives specifically to something. Um, and I believe God's called all of us in this room to something. And uh, part of the uh, work of the church is hoping, hope, hopefully is helping you cultivate and understand exactly what that is and how to use your spiritual gifts and ministry, not only to the body, but um, as a resource to the watching world. Let me pray first real quickly before we jump in. Father, as we open your word today, as uh, me, just a very uh, finite man, um, open uh, my mouth to declare your truth. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate that truth to us. Um, those of us who aren't even believers in this room and those of us who've been walking with you for some time, Lord, would you open up our eyes that we would see exactly what you're speaking to us about? Um, would you put your finger on the parts of uh, our lives that are full of sin and lead us to repentance through your kindness? For those that are broken, I pray, Father, you'd begin to restore. For those that are weary, that you would encourage. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. I know it's a long passage we read today. Um, I like that, to read it all kind of in one sitting. We can see that Luke put these three stories together um, for, a, for a purpose. 
Um, even this week, again, I was talking to my kids about this. Um, I was reading in Nehemiah after they had finished the wall, and Ezra took the scroll and stood up before the people. You remember this? And he opened the scroll, and it was like synonymous. As he opened the scroll, everyone stood up. It was pretty amazing. And they stood there for hours, and they just began weeping because of conviction of sin. Um, the Levites were there to explain the word to them, and then finally it kind of ended with this uh, huge uh, feast celebrating all that God had done. But as we read through God's word, um, there's two distinct things in chapter 16 that I want to bring out, that I'm going to look at these passages, and then we'll come back to these themes. But I want you to know them going in. One is this idea of uh, that the gospel is the hope for all people. Gospel is the hope for all people. Now, you know that. We know that. You've heard that. I pray that we believe that in practice. But this was a pretty radical idea um, uh, to, to first century Jewish people for sure. Now, Luke also, that was one of the themes of his, uh, the gospel bearing his name. He came to again and again. You may be familiar with the Christmas passage in Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And it ends with, that will be for all the people. So not one specific group, not just the Jews, not just the very religious, but that the gospel is to be for all the people. Luke also takes the genealogy of, uh, of Christ all the way back to Adam and not Abraham, specifically focusing on this to all people. And it goes again and again, we don't have time to share all these different passages that kind of paint this theme, the gospel is hope for all people. Uh, one of the clearest ways is probably in uh, chapter 13, verse 29. It says, and people will come from the east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are, uh, some, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And you're familiar with that, right? So the gospel is for all people. All people. The people that you love and the people you don't love. The people that get on your nerves and the people you've never met. The gospel is for all people. The extremely wicked and the extremely religious gospel is for all people. And then the second theme is this idea of the transforming power of the gospel. Again, uh, last week I mentioned this verse 2 in Romans 1 verse 16. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone, everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Second theme is this idea of transforming power of the gospel. We're going to meet three different characters in this, three completely different scenarios, the gospel transforming every one of them. Again, a phrase I've used that the grace of God, namely the grace of God, is a powerful disruptor. It is the power of God unto salvation. And maybe you can think about that grace in your own life, how God has radically changed your life because of his grace. Especially if you came to Christ later on as an adult, you'll remember this, like where you were to where you are. And as the grace of God continues to move, it is really a radical thing. So let's jump into the text. We see, um, we see Lydia almost uh, uh, right off. Uh, Paul and them go to a place where they suppose is a place of prayer, and we're introduced to this woman whose name um, is Lydia. It says in verse 14, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So we see that she's uh, a wealthy businesswoman. Uh, think uh, put together, brilliant, driven, uh, well-known, well-respected, owning some sort of boutique uh, in the middle of New York kind of thing. She's very affluent. 
She's selling beautiful clothing to beautiful people. It was incredibly expensive to get your hand on the dye that would ultimately make purple cloth. And so the fact that she sold that, she was probably one, one uh, just of, of a very few that, that had access to that, that did that kind of thing. So she was well-respected. We also see that she was religious, that she was a God-fearer. Now, that doesn't mean she was a Christ follower. That means that she um, was likely not a Jew, but she was a, a Christ, uh, I mean, that she was a God-fearer. You can see that if you look back through the Psalms, you'll read that it says that the Levites did this, the different tribes did this, and then there was this group of people called the God-fearers. They weren't, uh, in their lineage, they weren't Jewish or from uh, Israelite history, but they were people who respected the Yahweh God, and so they were always kind of following alongside. So she's just very religious person. As a matter of fact, on Sabbath day, she's not in the synagogue, but she's in a prayer meeting. And um, she believed in one God, again, not a follower of Jesus. And then the grace of God radically changes her life. In the story we see in verse 14, it says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is also the same word um, uh, used throughout uh, the New Testament of this uh, idea of craving. It was actually used to speak of alcoholics who craved alcohol. That the Lord opened her heart, not that, that she would just uh, hear the words, but she was attracted to it. Um, I would say that it would might be said of me, the word that's used uh, when you smell fajitas, right? Like you're just, I just got to get my... So one time I was in, uh, I took a bunch of teenagers to a uh, youth meeting over in... Um, Dallas, and uh, one of the props the guys used was to cook fajitas, the whole message, right, to kind of create this out, and it was a terrible idea, because I heard nothing he said. Um, all I thought was, man, I got to get my hand on those, on those fajitas. Uh, it would be great if I just rushed the stage, right, and grabbed the fajitas and ran off. Uh, I don't care nothing about your message, just give me those fajitas. Um, this is what who Lydia was, and you see this work of God at uh, engaging the heart of Lydia, that it actually opens her heart so that she can see and hear the truth that Paul is speaking of. And some of you are like that here, um, that God is opening your heart, or he's opened your heart, or even when you open the Word of God, some people have such a respect and reverence for the Word of God that when it's open, they kind of just lean up on their seat a little bit to hear the Word of God being taught or spoken. Or in the mornings when you open up the Word, that your heart is also open so that it can be like a seed planted that produces much fruit. Ultimately, this is a work of God. Only He can open a person's heart to the truth of the Gospel. And that is certainly what's going on here. A friend of mine says that someone effective in evangelism, which we see Paul is right here, only has to really believe two things. One, that salvation belongs to God, and two, that faith comes by hearing. Believing salvation belongs to God takes the pressure off of you and off of me, that we can boldly proclaim the gospel and leave the results up to him, because we don't have to convince anyone of this. This is something that God is doing. And believing that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God puts responsibility on us to actually proclaim something. I think we see also in this passage that the gospel transforms even the affluent. This is a lady who is affluent, who is a God-fearer, very religious person, but again, not a follower of Christ. And scripture talks a lot about, Jesus talked a lot about how it was hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It's much easier for the poor, for they have no illusion of security. They have no distraction of those things. But it's hard for the rich because if you're not careful, that you'll become prideful thinking that the wealth that you have is all related to your own hard work. And you'll begin to let pride seep in. But the gospel, again, the theme that goes through this transforming power of the gospel transforms even the affluence. And then the slave girl. Look at verse 16 with me. As they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And as I read this, I'm, you know, you kind of see this in like a, uh, in a mocking tone, almost like the, uh, those that crucified Jesus, you know, would say, Oh, you know, hail the King of the Jews. This mocking phrase again and again. Verse 18, and she kept doing this for many days. And I love this passage, like Paul having become greatly annoyed. Uh, I love how uh, scripture doesn't like clean itself up to make it all just, you know, so nice and tidy. This is Paul. And the reason that he's fixed to see the power of God move uh, is because he, he gets greatly annoyed with this person. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now this girl is the opposite of Lydia. Scholars say she's probably in her mid-teens. She has a demon and she's a slave, which means she's a spiritual and economic captive. She's busted up, taken advantage of. Her owners um, using her. She couldn't go her own way to the prayer meeting as it says that she was following them. First, she couldn't go if she wanted. She's a slave. And second, she has no real interest in going other than just to mock them. And I think the thing that we see here is the power of God not just to transform the affluent as with Lydia, but the power of God to transform um, even those bound in darkness. Many, many people look at these stories in Scripture And they kind of roll their eyes. Like we don't like to think about the spiritual nature of things at all. Our spiritual powers. We're far too educated a people for that. But let me promise you that scripture does not take such a stance. As a matter of fact, throughout the New Testament, again and again and again and again, it warns us of those things. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I don't want to get into this too much, but to concisely just describe what's going on here through Scripture, Scripture talks about namely two different kind of categories or classes or groups of demons or demonic activity. One group is currently bound. Some of them are bound temporarily and they'll be released during specific times. We see that in prophecy. Others are free to roam the earth and try to deceive us as believers and to keep the minds of unbelievers in the dark. Again, this is an entire message on its own, so we don't have time to go through every one of these references. I'll gladly email you some if you're uh, interested in reading into some of this. But the Bible is very clear that we have an enemy. And the devil, uh, it's called the devil or called Satan. Scriptures call him the ruler of the world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, and states that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan exercises a powerful controlling influence over people and nations and power structures in this fallen world and promotes every kind of evil. He is referred to in scriptures as a murderer from the beginning, a father of lies and the tempter. 
Anytime we see violence or bloodshed or murder or war or oppression or genocide or any other expression of hate as well as any and every sin, deception and evil, Satan and his demonic host are promoting it in some way, enticing people to it and empowering it. Ephesians 2.2 says that he is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You can trace all evil, error, and violence back to Satan. His ultimate desire is to deceive all people away from God into sin, misery, death, and eternal destruction. This is an age when he is continually active and his reign over what the Bible calls the kingdom of darkness is very, very real. If you read the news, and maybe you follow the news, it's just every week is something that is just unbelievable. You read these things of people who are hurting their own kids to such a degree, and walking into places this last week in Cincinnati and shooting the place up with no real motive. And that's the first thing we do, right? We look to the news to say, why did he do this? How could someone be... So deranged to do this. And if we could look behind the scenes, we would see this great puppet master leading people into such evil, that being Satan himself. But Paul includes, I mean, Luke includes this little glimpse. Now, again, there was a lot of people changed. This is not just the three that happened here. Luke is selecting from several stories to prove a point, and we'll get to that in a minute. The point clearly here is that the, the power of God is greater than the power of darkness. The good news of Jesus carries with it the power to transform even the most disturbed life. Think about that. Think about some of the most disturbed people that you've met or you've encountered or you've read about in the news itself. The power of God has the power to transform even those people. And as a matter of fact, the more messed up or hard-hearted you are, the, probably the greater candidate you are for the power of God to come in and transform your life. And then we have this Philippian jailer starting in really verse 19. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these... Men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. You might underline that. This says this probably ten times in the uh, recording of what Paul's doing as he moves into a city and exposes the idol. And this is what Paul, kind of his nature is, is he just pokes the idol of that city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd, this is, you know, kind of mob mentality, joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders for them to be beat with rods. And, when they had been inflicted with many blows upon them, threw them into prison, offering the jailer to keep them, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So is, who is he? We see, we call him the Philippian jailer. We're never given his name necessarily, but jailers were often highly decorated Roman soldiers who at some point were a little too old to be on the front lines of the battlefield. And because they had been uh, trained in warfare and weaponry and knew how to take people captive, this was kind of their, uh, towards their retirement that they were giving, given this um, privilege of being a prison guard. He's older likely hardened. He's part of the ruling class. I'm sure he's cynical. And we see some of these things, some of it in inference, because we can see just how um, 
how harsh he was. One, he puts them into the inner prison, away from any light, or away from any windows. Basically, he understood that those over him, the magistrates, were upset with Paul for doing this. They had already been beaten. He didn't offer to um, care for their wounds. He just put them in like the, the deepest, darkest part of, of the prison. Certainly disgusting. All the fecal matter, urine would run down to this place. It's very dark. And that's where we see Paul and his companions, Paul and Silas. It says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Because that's what you do when you've been beat, you know, unfairly, and you haven't given a proper trial, and you've been put in the darkest, deepest dungeon, and you've been even, you know, ordered to put your feet into uh, stocks. The stocks here that they're referencing are not like maybe what you saw at Disney World when you kind of stuck your arm and head through uh, the Silver Dollar City or something. And that's, No, this is much different than this. Uh, the stocks, this was a tor- torturing device that they were likely hung upside down and they were hanging from their feet and they would pull a rope and it would spread their legs apart and cause cramps certainly in their legs. So if you can imagine Paul and Silas, there they're hanging upside down, they're being tortured. Again, the magistrates didn't instruct the jailer to do any of this. This is just a hard warrior um, who takes abuse out on people that are in the prison. Oftentimes when they had their foot in stocks that they would uh, beat the very bottoms of your feet with rods, unbelievably painful. As the story goes, they're singing hymns to God. I just love this picture. This is so convicting in my own heart because it doesn't take much to put me in a bad mood, to be honest with you. Um, I feel like used to, I used to be a really optimistic fella. Uh, now just, uh, just the worst, uh, just, you know, traffic on airline will just put me in the worst mood in my life. These people are put in such a terrible place. And here they are, praying and singing hymns to God. I love this too, and the prisoners were listening to them. This culture of uh, Near East or even in the East today, if you've ever maybe even attended a funeral by someone who's from the Middle East, these are not quiet things. These people are very vocal, very loud. And uh, they communicate what they feel at the very moment that they feel it. And so they are in awe of what uh, Paul and Silas are doing, praying, singing hymns. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are here. The jailer saw two things in Paul and Silas. One, in suffering, he saw that they had peace and joy. In suffering, they had peace and joy. And if that's not just convicting enough, as we walk through suffering, I think people see a lot in us. Very rarely is it peace and joy. We live in an age where if we feel like injustice is happening or something's not right about what's going on or someone caught some you know, bad attitude uh, even uh, towards us, then we want to tell the world. Just this week, I, um, I felt a little... 
inconvenienced or attacked in one way. I was dropping my kiddos off at school and I uh, didn't abide by the policy of the school that I was dropping them off in. And uh, my fault, so to be honest, I didn't know exactly what the policy was, but some uh, teacher who probably had a bad morning um, just really came at me, uh, yelling at me, um, you know, you can't do that, you're supposed to be doing this, to the extent that my kids heard it and began crying. And um, I was not singing hymns at the moment, uh, <laughs> or saying prayer, maybe a prayer, Lord, help me not hurt someone. Um, I go home and I uh, talk to Ashley about it a little bit, and she's like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, well, I'm going to file a complaint. You're dang right I am. Somebody talking to me like that in front of my kids. Later on that morning, I'm reading this passage again, and I'm like, dang it! <laughs> Isn't it crazy how the Lord is so persistent, even with his own word, to speak directly to your heart about what you need to hear in the moment you need to hear it? In suffering, peace and joy. In cruelty, kindness and forgiveness. In their suffering, they showed the, the jailer peace and joy, but in their cruelty, they showed him kindness and forgiveness. The question is, why is Paul still there? He's an innocent man. He knows he shouldn't be in prison. The walls are torn down. His chains are off. Wasn't this an act of God that happened just like it did of Peter in Acts 12? And didn't Peter just get up and walk out? But Paul recognizes that this is part of God's plan to reach the people of Philippi. Hadn't he prayed that God would use him to reach those very people? Well, if part of God's plan was to reach Philippi, it would put him in prison so that he could suffer well before a Philippian jailer and then tell him the reason was that he was so happy was that he was, it was a price that he was willing to pay in order that the gospel may go forth. So Paul stands there with his freedom on his right hand, a freedom that he deserves, and on his left, a cruel man who had tortured him the night before. And Paul turns back to him, shares the gospel with him. Look in verse 28 with me. The jailer was about to kill himself, in verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself for we are here. The jailer called for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear. A little different in his uh, attitude at this point. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all that in, in, her, in his house. And he took them at the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, him and his family. And then he brought them up to his house and set food before him and he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. In cruelty, kindness, and forgiveness. Paul didn't win this guy to Christ immediately with his words. Maybe there was no opportunity or maybe there was no open door like it was with Lydia at first. Paul won him to Christ with the example of his life first and then with his words. And this is why we have to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as he leads us to share the gospel with people. Some people have fallen um, on the crutch of the old uh, Francis of Assisi quote that, uh, you know, 
share the gospel, and if you have to use words, something of that I'm paraphrasing. And some of that is true, but it's, some of it's grossly ignorant because how can people believe in what they've not actually heard from you proclaiming? So Paul didn't win this guy to Christ with only his words, at least not his first. He showed the guy the real power to live a different kind of life. In cruelty, he showed him kindness and forgiveness. About ten years ago in Pennsylvania, a gunman went to an Amish schoolhouse and took a bunch of little school children hostage. Maybe you remember it on the news. It was a terrible event. And during that whole crisis, he shot and killed five of them. I think they were all girls, ages 7 to 13, and then he killed himself. Within hours of the shooting, the Amish community had come around, the parents of the kid, the the shooter, and the wife of that shooter, who lived there in the area. They had come to them and expressed sympathy and said that they wanted to be with them for the hard days ahead. Can you imagine your own little child being murdered at such a place and your first step is to offer forgiveness when the shooter's funeral occurred more than half the people that gathered at the funeral were Amish people not friends of them but they had come there for support and an Amish spokesman said that all the families who had lost children forgave the shooter and his family And of course, in America, if you remember the story, there was a huge amount of discussion about this. Everybody was shocked at their ability to reconcile, to love, to reach out, and to forgive. Two or three later, some sociologists wrote a book called Amish Grace. I think I have a picture of the the cover on the screen. They later made a movie about it. And in this, a sociologist uh, wrote some study about the way that we forgive They say that we should not think our Western society is capable of producing this sort of thing anymore. Forgiveness is an act of self-renunciation. Forgiveness is an act of self-sacrifice for the good of others, for the good of the community. Forgiveness means that I could pay back, but I'm not going to. It's an act of self-renunciation, of self-sacrifice. But sociologists said our culture increasingly is a consumeristic culture. It's an individualistic culture, and it teaches self-assertion, not self-renunciation. It teaches you never to do self-renunciation, because that would mean that you were weak. And so, they said, the sociologists, we're more and more going to become incapable of having people who can truly forgive, who can truly share power, who can truly make self-sacrifices. We're just not producing them. In contrast, they go on, and these aren't believers that I know of, these sociologists that are putting this book out. And Amish culture is based on Christianity, the belief that we're saved through what Jesus Christ has done for us. He had all glory, he had all power, had every right to be angry at us, his creation for turning away from him. But instead, he gave all that up. He gave and he gave and he gave, and then when he had nothing left to give, he gave some more. He gave up his glory and became a human being. He gave up his life. He went to the cross and died there for us. And as he was dying, what did he say? Father, forgive them because they don't even understand what they're doing. In church, if we're to be saved through self-giving of Christ, then we hear Christ saying to take up our cross and follow him. To lose yourself, to find yourself, to not live for yourself anymore, but live for God and love your neighbor well. 
You see, that's what's drilled into this Amish community, and as a result, they can do things like this. It really makes us think about that. At least it makes me think about that. Who's God leading you to forgive? Who in your life has hurt you to the point of even being cruel about it and called us to respond with kindness and forgiveness? How many of you are walking through the difficulty of suffering right now and the fruit of your Jesus-shaped life is peace and joy in the midst of suffering? I'm going to close by driving those two themes home that we saw here. One is that the gospel is for all people. In a Jewish prayer book that the, that the dedicated Jews use, even in the time of uh, the first century, where this, this is being written to this audience, in, the, in their daily office or their daily liturgy of that prayer book, it begins one of the blessings or, or uh, thank, um, prayers of gratitude, thanking God. He would say, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or slave or a woman. And this is what the Jews prayed then, and many Jews still pray now. That is, they're coming into his courts with thanksgiving. This is what they pray. God, I thank you. I'm not a Gentile slave or a woman. And it's no mistake that Luke compiles those three stories here for us to see a Gentile slave and a woman. That God used and transformed their life in such a miraculous way. Of all the conversion experience that happens, Luke chooses these three to illustrate that very point that God uses the lowly, the marginalized, the affluent, and the captive to display his grace and glory. The point Luke is clarifying is that the gospel is not only for the affluent, it's not only for those in power, it's not only for a specific group of people, the gospel literally is good news for the world. This is what we sing at Christmas time, right? Joy to the world. Because it literally is joy to the world. The middle class, the jailer, those in poverty, the slave girl, and those with money, Lydia, are all prime candidates for the grace of God. It's for the spiritual seeker like Lydia, those you would never think would come to Christ, like the jailer, and the schizophrenic homeless man that you might meet downtown. We are the ones that tend to put limits on God, not what God can do. What did he say again and again? For nothing is impossible with me. Now I think, if we're going to be real honest, now we have our own categories of people that God can't transform. We've got people that, you know, we're not praying for. We've got people that are outside the realm of God's grace and we shouldn't. The second theme is that the power of the gospel to transform every life. Church, we forget this. And I'm convinced that we forget this because we don't pray for this. And I'm convinced that we forget this because we don't care. We don't position our life to see God do these things. 
I mentioned this phrase the other day, the great disruption, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about. It's something I can't get off my mind. This great disruptor of the gospel really is the grace of God. It's a term I first heard uh, of this disruptor. I heard Mark Cuban say on, uh, on Shark Tank in relation to, uh, to business. It's about a mode of business that comes in and disrupts the market in order that makes everything else adjust to it. You think about uh, Uber or Lyft, how it just completely disrupted the transportation market. Or you think of Airbnb, who completely disrupted the hotel. Or think of the invention of the iPhone. And so we were on a trend that we were going phones smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, remember the Razor? Uh, anybody? No? Um, yeah, we thought that was the coolest thing in the world, right? And we're like, man, me and my buddies are discussing, man, they're going to have these things so small one day that you can embed them in your skin. It is, this is going to, and that's going to be the mark of the beast. And anyway, this, <laughs> sorry. We got caught up in that a little bit, uh, conspiracy theory. And now I carry around a phone that's the size of my Bible. Like, uh, they just got bigger and bigger. The iPhone disrupted the market. Something comes in, a new product or category in which everything else is forced to react to this new thing. And here's what I want to say, that this transforming power of the gospel is the great disruptor. Namely, the grace of God at work disrupting these people's lives. Lydia was always just going to be a religious person who gathered and had a little Bible study of the old scrolls, not knowing anything about Jesus. She was just kind of going about her way. And this slave girl, as far as she knew and as far as her owners knew, she was always going to live this certain kind of life and make money for them and be a, be a spiritual and a physical captive. And this jailer was just living his good life, right? He was just like the perfect idea of a, of a, of a beer commercial. Like he had worked hard and uh, he was going to retire. And if they had such a thing, he would play golf in you know, his latter days. And the grace comes in and completely disrupts his life. And hopefully it's done the same thing to you. If you remember your life, how grace came in and just disrupted it unto salvation, but even as you walk with him, the grace of God continues to disrupt your life, does it not? Does it not lead you to repentance again and again when you're fighting or arguing with God or you've sinned against him and God's grace and his kindness comes and surrounds you? You turn back to him. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's received experientially through repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ, and we receive that grace. It doesn't just forgive us of our sins. It lavishes with the provision and promises of God in our lives on an ongoing basis. This disruptive power of grace breaks into the habits and cycles of sin and dysfunction that we're born into and we get trapped in by our own foolish choices. In a normal life, grace is disrupting the old ways of life and is changing these people into new people. Paul himself was one who was transformed, was he not? You remember his story on the road to Damascus? If you were to watch this play out, this scene on a movie, Paul would be the villain. He comes in hating Christians, literally hates them, imprisons them, even has them killed. But what's happened to him as we see him now, as he later would say, you know, if I could go to hell on their behalf so that they would go to heaven, I would gladly do that. What has happened to Paul? The grace of God has disrupted his life. Changing antagonists into apostles. Isn't that incredible? The good news of Jesus is because of God's grace, these people can be radically changed and you can too. 
Not just making nice people nicer, but turning wicked people into saints. Antagonists into apostles. Turning people who hate God into apostolic leaders for his kingdom. I was reading one of the biographies of one of these great revivalists. Finney, and before Finney would go into a town, who was one of the leaders of the Second Great Awakening up in the Northeast, before he would go into town, he would send another guy, you may have heard this story, they called Father Nash. Father Nash would go in ahead of him and begin to pray. And he would rent out the, someone's basement. There's actually written letters, people writing to Charles Finney, like, hey, one of, your, uh, one of you guys said who works with you have come, and they've been in this room, and they've been in there for five days, and they won't come out, and they haven't eaten, and all I can, all I can hear them doing is groaning in prayer in there. Are they okay? And Finney would write back, yeah, leave them alone. You'll see in a couple weeks. And they would go ahead, and they would begin to pray. And one of the things that Father Nash would, would pray is he would try to, as he got into this, these certain cities, he would ask the cities for a list of names of the most notorious sinners in the city. And with these names, he would begin to, in his words, unleash the hounds of heaven upon these people. And he would pray, God, just make them miserable in their sin. Lord, bring conviction of sin. Holy Spirit, don't let them allow them to run away from your presence. And so then, when Finney would actually show up to a town and begin to preach some sort of revival on the first or second night of revival, these great notorious sinners would get up in front of a congregation and repent of their sin all because of what God had done. The the grace of God was this great disruptor. Again, I've been telling you about a missionary to China, I mean, yeah, to China or Southeast Asia named James Frazier. Um, He went to reach the Lysu people. I think I have a picture of these Lysu people that he went to reach. I read read the book, um, and I've read it several times now, just in the past three months, such encouragement to my heart. But this missionary, James Fraser, gave up his promising career in the 1900s to move over there to minister to these Lysu people who were unreached at the time. And these people were so resistant to the gospel. And at first, decade of his ministry produced very little fruit. One story his daughter tells from his journals of him going into some village and then being very resistant to the gospel. And so he goes out, instead of trying to convince them of the good news of the gospel, he just goes outside of the village and begins to pray. And he's praying all night, just asking God to move and asking God to move and persevering in prayer. And then the next morning, the, uh, the local witch doctor sees what he's doing out there, and he's actually praying under uh, what they called their demon tree, where they would sacrifice all their idols to these demons. And knowing that that was wrong. The witch doctor actually tied uh, James to the tree and they uh, were moving to kill him and he certainly thought that he was going to be killed and he just began to pray more and more and of course God does this miraculous thing and he gets rescued from that and eventually the whole village comes to Christ. It's this incredible story of the grace of God that works to disrupt. Maybe a story you're more familiar with of Jim Elliott who was a missionary to the Wadoni tribe in Ecuador. I think I have a picture of these five guys. These are Uh, the five guys who uh, were killed actually bringing the gospel to this tribe. In the jungles of Ecuador, they knew that this tribe was barbaric and one of the most dangerous. They were warned again and again, but Jim and his 
contemporaries were just uh, convinced that this is what God had called them to do, and they did that at the cost of their own life. But that's and that's a that's a terrible, but also an incredible story. If you've read much about it, that the story continues that Jim's wife Elizabeth and their daughter moved back near that tribe, eventually moves in with these people, the very ones that killed her husband. The whole tribe ends up coming to Christ. One moment they're literally killing the messenger of the gospel, and within a few years they become messengers of the gospel themselves. Incredible how the grace of God disrupts. The good news of Jesus is just this great disruptor. It literally has the power to change the destiny and lives of people, the affluent like Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. In a modern example, there's a guy named Anthony Flew, who was an antagonistic atheist in the 20th century. He came up with all sorts of arguments against the Christian faith that other prominent atheists continue to use even today. However, toward the end of his life, he wrote a book entitled, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. You can read in the book, concludes with this summary of the gospel by N.T. Wright at the end, amazing how God took someone who was an antagonist of the gospel and literally made him, uh, transformed him than someone who communicates it. We see the, how it ends. It ends with the Philippian jailer and his whole household coming to Christ and ultimately the gospel going to Philippi. It ends in verse 40 with, it says, so they went out of the prison in verse 40 and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. Lydia went from this religious do-gooder to opening her home to being the church as the place where people were met and encouraged and the gospel went forward. I've got three questions and we're going to move to communion. First question, and I want to give you some time to think about this where you're at. First question, how has the grace of God changed your life? I don't mean made, made you nicer. How has the grace of God literally changed your life? Second question, how are you stewarding God's grace? As God has transferred, transformed you, entrusted the good news of the gospel to you like this priceless gift and broken jars as Scripture would call it. How are you stewarding the grace of God? And final question, where has God called you? To be this grace display. Where has God called you? We began this talk knowing... Paul and Silas and Luke had been called to bring the gospel to this place. They faithfully do it, and God did some incredible things. But God's called all of us somewhere. Where has he called you to? I'm going to pray for us, and the band's going to come up and sing. Lead us in a song, but this is a time of uh, response. As you have heard the gospel go forth today, what is God leading you to do? Maybe there's some unforgiveness that's moving towards bitterness in your own heart and you just need to, you need to give that to God. You need to forgive. As Paul
Paul displayed to the jailer in such a powerful way. Maybe there's some real demonic strongholds on your life. You need to maybe ask some other people around you or come up to one of us after the service or here in a minute and just ask us to pray with you. You'll be able to overcome these patterns of sin. Maybe you're just not convinced that the gospel really works anymore and you would ask God that he would return a passion for his gospel to be spread. Father, we thank you for your word. We're in this awesome picture of the gospel going forth and transforming these people's lives in such a dramatic way that ultimately it would transform the world. And Lord, we understand that you've called us to participate in the same, that as we've been changed, we've been radically called in. Our hearts and lives have been changed and you're radically sending us out to be your hands and feet to a watching world. Lord, help us. Give us wisdom to know when to push on and when to just stay. Of when to speak up and when to keep our mouths quiet. Of when to cry and when to sing. Sometimes both. Lord, help fill our hearts with such joy and peace that even in the midst of the darkest suffering in our life that we could offer a sacrifice of praise to you. Or do something in us as a people that is so countercultural and yet so attractive, compelling. Jesus, thank you for your death for us on a cross, salvation that is offered to everyone who would trust in you. Pray, Father, that you would continue to move even in the end of our service here. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Take plenty of time where you're at to pray. When you're ready, we do have communion ready. If you're not familiar with how this works here, um, communion is reserved for those who are believers in Jesus and desire to follow him in obedience. You don't have to be a member of our church. And we just take the bread and dip it in the juice and then partake. And I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Come when you're ready.